Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church. At Crossroads Community Church, our vision is to awaken the city of Pittsburgh and surrounding areas by creating cool places to experience God in local neighborhoods throughout Pittsburgh and beyond. Now here is this week's message. For those of you who are kind of just joining in, or uh, if you weren't around last week, uh, we're continuing um, in a series that we're doing called Game On. We're kind of just looking at several issues that we know are coming up as we roll into the holidays. And last week we talked about uh, family, um, and we even played you know, a little game called Family Feud. Uh, this week we are talking about marriages because we know uh, for marital couples just the holidays brings a lot of joy, brings a lot of happy time, but also brings a lot of stress. Don't say amen if your spouse is next to you. But um, it does. So we're going to play a little game called uh, the newlywed game. So I need two couples. No, we're not. We're not. We're, we're not going to do that. I, I really thought about doing that, but how many of you guys have ever watched the newlywed game, either the old or new? That game is designed to kill marriages. Like, seriously. It, the whole basis of it is you have a couple there and you send either the man or the husband or the wife, one of the two away, and you ask them questions to see if how well they know their spouse. And that's, there's not a whole lot wrong with that, except they really dig into the ones that get it wrong and make them look bad. And it, it just kind of like, you know, they end up fighting on the way home and arguing over it. And, and here's the thing. Marriage is, the, the way marriage is designed, uh, we should all still be newlyweds. There's not an ending point. I know they have a two-year or something like that mark off. Uh, but because as you grow as individuals, husbands or wives, uh, you're going to change. That means your spouse has to grow and change with you or continue to learn new things about you. So um, you're constantly learning new things about your spouse. There's not a point where you say, I know everything there is to know about him or her, because when you get there, they usually change, and you've got to learn more. But the whole purpose of that game is um, it's focused on, here's what you don't know about them. And if we play today, there would be arguments on the way home. Hopefully they would stay until it was on the way home or, you know, people sitting in the back. That's not what I said. Or just, and we're, we're not that kind of church. We don't want to do that, okay? Uh, but actually, uh, I was looking it up on the Internet, and um, that means it's true, okay, that there were actually people who got divorced because of that game. They go on that game, and they get stuff wrong, and they argue about what they got wrong to the point of they say, okay, we're done. If you don't know me that well, we're done. And apparently, because it is TV, uh, there was a point in its heyday where that was the focus. The better the argument, the more the arguments, the more the ratings. I mean, that makes sense. That's the kind of culture we live in. Uh, but the game's always been like that. It's, it's been renewed. Actually, it's been off the air, then back on, off the air, and back on. Uh, and there's a lady from The View, um, Sherry Shepard. Okay, somebody watches it. Okay. Uh, who, who asks the questions now and hosts the show. Okay. So we're not going to play the game, but I don't think it's fair because last week we were talking about family, so we did play around the family feud. So I don't think it's fair this week that we don't at least ask some questions, okay? I'm not going to call the couples up and pinpoint who's right and who's wrong. What I'm going to do, I'm going to just ask those type of questions. None of them are whoopee questions, okay, because um, we're church. But uh, I'm going to ask some questions, and then what you can do is don't raise your hand or write them down. You guys can discuss them on the way home, discuss lovingly, 
on the way home. Oh, that what you thought, or, or does that make sense? Is that fair? Okay, all right, so here's what we're going to do. Um, first question, and, and you guys, husbands and wives, each, this is addressed to you, for the, those of you who are thinking about getting married, just think about, hmm, because I'm sure even though you're not married, someone's going to ask you on the way home, what did you think about that? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask questions. You don't have to write it down. Just think about it. And if your spouse is not here, if you're here and your spouse is not here, when you get home, don't, don't you come up with and then go home and drill them and expect them to match what you got. Just, okay, so here's the first question. When was the first time, not a whoopee question, when was the first time that you knew that your spouse was the one? Right? Everyone knows what I mean by the one. Like, ah, this is it. They are the one. Okay? Uh, for example, Christy and I, we've been married for nine years, and it was love at first sight. She saw me and she loved me. But <laughs> it took about a year for her to realize that. But... Um, there, there was some point where you and your, sp- and you may have different answers, but where one of you each said, ah, oh, this is it, this is the one. So uh, when was the first time when you knew that your spouse was the one, okay? Second question, and again, don't have to answer these, but on the way home, have great discussion. Okay, what was the first thing, the first thing that went through your head after the proposal? So for you husbands that were, on your knees or wherever you were making the proposal, and for you women, after you heard the proposal, what was the first thing that went through your head? And for example, when I proposed to Christy, the first thing that went through my head, actually, I mean, you guys, there's a verse, you can think of that verse in Revelations that says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour, because she just sat there with her jaw dropped and eyes open and didn't say anything. It was only like 37 seconds, but I was like, oh my gosh. It feels like an eternity, and I was thinking, she's trying to figure out how to say no, which obviously was not the case, but, and that probably was not the first thing that went through her head. So on your way home, or when you get home, um, ask the question, what was the first thing that went through your head after the proposal? Right, now here's the second, or excuse me, the third question, last question, um, and finish this sentence about your spouse, okay? Finish this sentence about your spouse. You are the most blank, fill in the blank, person in the world, okay? Now, I, I will say this. If one of these questions has the potential to start a fight, depending upon how you've been getting along, that question may be it. So maybe don't answer until you're both in a good place and, and have a lot of good stuff going on. Uh, and then you can answer that question. Uh, but here's the thing. I want us to look at the progression of the concept of marriage, throughout biblical history. And I can tell you right off the bat, I'm not going into a male and male, female and female, male and female homosexuality type of place. That, that has nothing to do with, if you want to know about that, we did a series on it, or a message on it a couple of weeks ago. But uh, I honestly want us to look at the biblical place of marriage because what it started as and what it is now, two totally different places. And you'll understand uh, what I mean in a moment. If you have a Bible, Open it up to the book of Genesis, chapter 2. That's where we were at last week, and we're kind of digging back into the beginning of all things. So uh, turn to Genesis, chapter 2. And if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Uh, There should be one under the seat to the left, to the front, the right, somewhere of you. And we'll have someone, excuse me, bring you a Bible. Uh, And if you're wondering, it's somewhere around page 1 or 2. So it shouldn't be that hard to find. Uh, But we're kind of looking at what many people are familiar with, the beginning um, of this whole marriage thing. So in Genesis chapter 2, 
in verse 18, okay, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, from a biblical perspective, which is where we're, we're looking at things from, it was God's intent for man and woman to come together in marriage, all right? It was God's intent that men and women would be united in a marriage con- concept, and he looked at it as a good thing, okay? So make sure we're clear on that, all right? Verse 19, now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. Now, um, Here's something to, to, to pay attention to, what we're about to see. Because in verse 23, the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, this is important because man's response, or Adam's response, to God bringing him a, a helper or a mate or a wife was, This is great because now... We're in this thing together. Remember, God said uh, originally, hey, here's a role and a purpose for you. And he created humanity, not just to be in relationship with him, but also to fill the earth and populate the earth and to tend the garden. So work, relationship, and relationship with God. And he said, hey, in order to fulfill that, it's not good that you're trying to do this on your own. I am going to bring a mate for you. And man's response, Adam's response to that was great. I'm not alone. I have someone, we are in this together. Now this, what we're going to call a marital unit, okay, is complete. And together, we get to go out and fulfill God's purpose, okay? Uh, Drop down to verse 24. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So as a result... Okay, as a result of God saying, hey, I want you to fulfill my purpose, and I'm going to bring you a mate to do that, and it's going to be a good thing. And as a result of Adam saying, hey, you've brought this mate into my life, my spouse. Now we are a marital unit. We are lockstep together, both of us, the unit that's going to go about fulfilling God's purpose. And as a result of that, the result was that they were now able to stand on their own as a marital unit, and do God's purpose. Now, where it says that, you know, to leave their mother and father, this wasn't God talking about what happened to Adam and Eve because they didn't leave a mother and father. They didn't have one to leave. This was God setting the precedence for what marriage should be. And it's not that you neglect or reject your family, but now your role is that you are lockstep with your spouse to complete God's will, freestanding on your own, no longer under the support, not that your family shouldn't support you, but that's not where your role is. Your role is now with your wife out together as a unit to do what God has called you to do, okay? Now, the other thing that they got to enjoy as a result for this reason was they got to enjoy physical intimacy, not the, you know, morning walk of shame, not the morning guilt because you were doing it with someone that you weren't supposed to or someone you didn't know or someone you met last night, but physical intimacy built on trust, and built on being in unity with someone 
in God's purpose and plan. Does that make sense? Okay, all right, so now here's the thing. That was the view. The view of marriage today is different because today it's become disposable. It's become, hey, if I, I, you know what, written into the, and I'm not, I feel, I, I don't know if anyone has um, the legal thing they have, what are they called, where you uh, make plans if we, prenuptial, okay. All right, I don't know if you have that. I'm not trying to fault you if you do. But it's kind of like, it's not saying if this fails, it's really saying when this fails. It's really placing your hedge and your bet against when this fails, I got to have a way to kind of make sure that we separate and I still get enough to support me. And that wasn't in God's plan. God's plan was, this is now a unit that's going to be together forever, okay? Now, I want to show you this, and, and, and bear with me, I want to show you a timeline, um, and again, I just ask you to bear with me because from a, the guys who show up on Tuesday night Bible study, we have walked through this timeline already. Um, but I just need you to bear with me because it does tie into where we're going, okay? I want to show you this timeline. So um, if we look at creation, all right, and again, not, there are some people that think it was six days. Some people think it was six million years or whatever. doesn't matter. But if you look at from when Adam was created, whatever year that was, and if that was zero year, like the... It wasn't like in the year whatever. It's that's the starting point of our timeline. So it's zero. And then later is one year and later is two years. Are you with me so far? Okay, so year zero, Adam was created. And then if you circle ahead all the way to, if my clicker will work, okay. Uh, you guys heard of Methuselah? I really don't know if he looked like that, but he lived 969 years, so I'm guessing he looked like that. And they probably didn't have dentures. That's why his mouth was like that. But... Um, now, he lived 969 years. He was born in the 687th year. Does that make sense? If Adam was started in year zero and then one year, two years, three years, 687th year after the creation, after Adam uh, was formed, um, Methuselah was born, and he lived 969 years, which you're actually going to see he died in the year that the flood took place. All right? This is all going to make sense. I'm tying this in. Uh, and then you move to the birth of Noah. You guys familiar with Noah and the flood and the ark? Okay, birth of Noah, the 1,056th year after Adam. So starting from Adam is zero, 1,056th year. Noah was born. He was 600 at the time of the flood. So that puts the flood at um, the 1,656th year. Now, for those of you who are wondering where I'm getting these numbers, if you look through starting in Genesis 5, uh, and I know a lot of people say you can't use the Bible to date stuff, but in those particular chapters, it gives very specifics. It says Adam was born, and it says he lived X number of years, and then he had a son, and then he lived X number of more years, and then he died. And then it tells you his son did the same thing. His son lived, and then he had, and that's where I'm getting these numbers from. They're very specific. They're not like he was the father or of, which means he could have been grandfather of. It tells you with specificity how long he lived, before he had this child, how long that child lived before they had that child, how much longer they lived after having that child. So, uh, and I don't know how long ago, a couple of weeks ago or maybe last season when we were walking through our Bible study, we walked through this verse by verse to come up with this timeline uh, on our Tuesday night Bible study. All right, so the flood took place in the 1,656th year. Right, it rained for 40 days. Water covered the earth for 150 days. They were on the ark for 364 days. Some theologians say plus or minus, but it was about roughly a year, our chronological year 
that they were on the ark, okay? Now, bear with me. Um, then they had this thing in the year. It says there was a guy named Peleg. His name means division. And he was born in the 1,756th year. Now, this is highly debatable. But this is when, the, according to the Bible and most theologians believe, that the earth that was one landmass was separated. Now, a lot of theologians don't believe it suddenly separated like I went to bed and it was one landmass and I woke up and then I had to take a ship to get to where I want. They believe it was over the course of a period of time, which is why the Bible says his name was Peleg, which means division, because in his lifetime the earth became separated. So they believe that it was somewhere between uh, his, he was born 1,756 years after, he died 1,995 years after, somewhere in his lifetime is where it completed its separation. That it was in the process when he was born, it couldn't have started way after he was born because he would have already been named. But it was in the process when he was born and it was completed somewhere in his lifetime. Now that's, again, speculation, but the Bible definitely says that it happened in his lifetime. All right? And then you have what we all are familiar with, Abraham, who was born in the 1,947th year. He was called by God in the 2022nd year, about the age of 75. Okay? So we have from Adam... 2,022 years of history, and from a biblical standpoint, from, from the time that God created marriage, it stayed the same, all right? Now, uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12, and I'm going to show you this biblically, right? Genesis chapter 12. That's more of the timeline, sorry. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 10, all right? Now, this is, this, is, this is what it says. And some of your Bibles have a title like Abraham in Egypt, or Abraham goes to Egypt, or Abram, sorry. Abram, this is before uh, God changed his name to Abraham. Abram in Egypt. It says, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Okay, now stop right there. Because that's, that's, that's kind of key. Because a lot of, you know, the family stress and pressure we're going into the holidays, and I'm not trying to just say this to say this, but really a lot of stuff can be avoided if we would just encourage each other once in a while. Last week we talked about just go home and talk to your family. Uh, and if all you're talking about are the serious things and the stresses, that needs to be discussed. But sometimes just some joyful encouragement, you know, hey, honey, you look good, or, you know, oh, thank you so much for whatever your spouse did. Just some positive reinforcement goes a long way, but don't do it before you do something stupid like this, okay, because what he's about to do is really stupid. Okay, so he says, what a beautiful woman you are. Then he says, when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. Basically, this is what happens, right? Uh, they broke the marital bond because they're supposed to be lockstep connected. Hey, this is us walking together in unison, in unity as a marital unit, okay? Uh, but Abraham broke it because he said, you are like stunningly beautiful, but in order to preserve myself, not the marital unit, myself, when people see you and say how good-looking you are, 
you need to say you're my sister in case they want to hit on you so they don't have to get rid of me, okay? Now, Sarai broke the marital bond by saying yes. This is one of those times, going back to last week, where a little discussion should have been taking place and I don't get it, you're, you're basically, the word didn't exist back then, but you're pimping me out. That, that's what he was doing. And that discussion didn't take place, and they broke that marital bond that they were supposed to have together. All right, drop down to verse 14. When Abram came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. Now, here's, 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 this is, this is, this is, to put this in today's standard. How many of you guys, anyone ever been to D.C.? Okay, all right. This was for you married couples. And we talked, about this, this is the exact way we talked about it when we were doing the Bible study. If you and your spouse were to go down to D.C. And then some of the congressional aides, you're going through the tourist thing, you're checking out the monument, you're checking out the, the White House. Some of the congressional aides see you and your spouse. And they look at your spouse and say, wow, she's hot. Congressman so-and-so would love to hook up with her. Now, you, you, you have to understand, at the time, she was 65, okay? At 65 years of age, he not only looked at her and said she's beautiful, but he knew that other men would look at her and say, she is hot. So you're in D.C. with your spouse. A congressional aide looks and says, wow, his wife is hot. They contact the congressman. The congressman says, oh, she is hot, but I can't hook up with her because of him. And so this is what happens. Drop down to verse 17. Oh, excuse me, the rest of verse 16. Or 15. And when the Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. He treated Abraham well for her sake, and Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, and maidservants and camels. In other words, the congressman, he looks at her and he says, I, I gotta have her. She's stunning. She's beautiful. She's hot. And so what he does is he gives you federal grants for your business, whatever that is, so that he can take your sister into his home and he can hook up with her. Okay? Now, um, let, me, let me finish the, the, the thing. Uh, drop down to verse 17. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abram's wife, Sarai. So Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife and everything he had. So God intervened. He said, I created this marital bond. I don't want it to be messed up. God intervened, and he stepped in, and he revealed to Pharaoh that, hey, this is not our sister. This is our wife. And Pharaoh, who was not a follower of God, did not know God, Jehovah, the God who called Abraham out, said, hey, this is your wife. I can't touch her. In other words, throughout the 2022 years of biblical history, at that point, marriage was viewed as more important than a person's life. I can take your life and kill you, but I can't mess with the marital bond. That's how strong the marital bond was. And it's not just people who knew God that knew this, because Abram said, hey, when we go down there, there's going to be people there in Egypt. They don't worship Jehovah. But they also 
viewed the marital bond and said, this is, I can't touch that. So Pharaoh, who at the time was the, the, the ruler of the strongest and most powerful nation on the planet at that time, who could have just said, yes, I can take her, said, wow, that's your wife? I have to back off because that bond is so strong, I can't touch it. I can't mess with her. And that was the world. It wasn't just a biblical view or the people that follow God. It was a world view that marriage was meant to be so strong and so precious that the only way that I can break that marital bond is I have to go kill you or your spouse. Then you're no longer married. Then I can do whatever I want, okay? So the question is for us, how do we get back to that marital perspective, to where, um, um, and here's the thing, it's not our job to worry about what the culture is doing. It's our job to do what God wants us to do so that the culture sees this is how God views marriage. And it's great when we talk to other people and we can share our views, but our first and primary responsibility is to look at and say, how are we, the Christ followers, the people that know God, how are we handling our marriages? Before we can look at people who don't know God and say, you're doing it wrong, we got to make sure that we're doing it right. Does that make sense? So here's, here's the thing. I'm going to share with you um, um, uh, four things really quickly. And when I do premarital counseling, this is usually what I'll go over because these four areas, you can trace 98%, literally 100%. If you do the six degrees of separation, 100% of all marital breakups come down to these four areas. And whenever I do premarital counseling, these are the things that I discuss. These are the things that I share with the marriage couples and then also ask them if they're interested to take on a, uh, a marriage mentor a couple that's been doing it and, and been through the trials who can be there for them to support them and pray for them. So here are the four, four areas, and I'm going to touch on these quickly. Uh, first and foremost is family, because how many people know your family is a huge influence on how your marriage goes? Uh, and then there's finances, because so many people break up over money. Not just, I don't have um, enough, I'm only dealing with this a little bit, but there are people that have more than enough that break up over money. How does it get spent? Who gets to determine what it gets spent on? Right? And of course, faith, uh, not so much that everyone that gets married has to be a Christian, because we just saw even people that didn't know God uh, still had that view of marriage. But people with differing faith views will have differing moral views, and that can put a lot of stress and strain on a marriage. And then, of course, forever, and that is basically making the commitment that regardless of what happens with the other three, this will not end. This marital unit uh, is going to stay forever. So first, uh, let me hit on this one, and that's family. Um, and, and realize that just like God said, that when you get married, you are now one flesh, one marital unit, okay? And, and, and the deal is not that you eliminate your family as a support group, but that when you are married, it should not be um, uh, because lots of different uh, families are raised different ways. They have different worldviews, different perspectives on things, on different traditions. All that comes into the relationship, okay? But it should not be me. Um, arguing with my wife and her family behind her saying, yes, we agree with her, or her arguing with me and my family behind me saying, yes, they agree with me. What we should be is her and I standing side by side, and then we, we can agree or disagree with this family unit, or we can agree or disagree with my family unit, but we are still together in unison on how we are going to engage, uh, talk to, and relate to each family. 
And again, a lot comes into play with that. A lot of family traditions and friends also come into that cycle because we all walk into the relationship with friends who have helped kind of shape us, our family and friends, into what we think about certain things. And you're getting into a relationship, getting into a unit with someone who thinks differently. And don't raise your hand, but how many know that your spouse doesn't think like you? If you don't, you will learn. You will definitely learn, okay? All right, but um, the other one is... uh, finances. Now, here's the thing. I know lots of people are going to have family coming in because Thanksgiving's coming up. You're going to have family for Christmas, and you're going to go visit families and stop by their houses. There's going to be a lot of stress on that. There's going to be a lot of stress on finances, the pressure to buy things, the pressure to, uh, uh, to you know, get so-and-so for this family and so-and-so for this and these kids and the, all that. That's a lot of pressure and stress. And the only way from a marital perspective that it all works out great is if you first acknowledge it's not our money. It's God's money. We didn't earn it, okay? Uh, let me show you this verse really quickly. Just read along up here for the sake of time. First um, Chronicles chapter 29, this is David, and this is David committed, I'm going to build the temple for God, okay? And God said, no, you're not the one to build it. Your son will build it. But David said, okay, here's what I can do. I can still put all my financial resources into preparing it so that my son, when he's ready, Solomon, ready to build it, all he has to do is build it. Here's what David said. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord, God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. And here's the key thing he said, for everything, everything, not just the money we earn, but everything that we bring into the relationship, all the cars, all the hunting gear, uh, all the motorcycles, uh, all the clothing, all the furniture, the TVs, the remote controls, all the way down to the knives and spoons and cups and plates. He says, everything in heaven and earth is yours. It's all God's. And he says, yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. And wealth and honor... The wealth, the, the richer I get, the more money I make, the more we bring into this house, wealth and honor come from you. And he says, you are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. So first thing he did is before and after, he said, I'm going to praise God, and I acknowledge it all comes from you, and I'm going to give you praise for that. Any of you guys see that movie, Facing the Giants? It's a football movie, so everyone in Pittsburgh should have seen it. Okay, uh, in that movie, there was a, the coach, and he made the statement. He was telling the team once he had this epiphany that if we win, we're going to praise God with all we have. And if we lose, we're going to praise God with all we have. And that should be the same focus from a marital perspective on your finances. If we are bringing in a lot of money into our household, we're going to praise God with all we have because it's his. doesn't matter who's bringing it in. doesn't matter if one spouse is working and one is not. doesn't matter if both are working, but one's making more than the other. Everything that comes into here, we're going to praise God because it's his. And the same thing is true if when we lose the job and all we're bringing is an unemployment check, when the unemployment check stops, when we don't have anything but two mites, you remember the story of the, uh, the woman who gave two mites in the book of Matthew? She gave out of all she had, and she gave it with joy. So even when we have nothing, we're going to praise God with all we have because it was his. It's his to give. It's his to take away. And it is impossible to split up and have a conversation about, well, we have to figure out the... Uh, 
the division of the house and the home and goods, well, you can't have that conversation if it's all God's. And if you both acknowledge it's all God's, it's not yours to split. And a lot of families, especially during the holidays, are going to have a lot of tense conversations about finances. And I just implore you, start every one of those conversations with, hey, you know what, let's take a minute and let's just praise God that we do have something to spend. Even if it's just a, a all we can buy is a Tonker, tuck, tonker truck, a Lego. <laughs> If all we can buy is a Lego toy and they've got to split it between however many kids, we're going to praise God with all we have for that because he allowed us to do that. And a lot, you guys know as well as that, a lot of families split up over finances, all right? Okay, um, next one is faith. And this is a huge one because faith determines um, how we behave, how I perceive God or don't perceive the existence of God determines a lot about my attitudes, how I behave, and you can have couples that get married and they have differing faith views, and I'm not saying the only people that should marry are Christ followers, that's not what I'm saying, but when you have people of differing faith marry, then I may come based on my beliefs with the, hey, it's okay to spank my kids, and then my wife may come with the beliefs, no, it's not, and then one may come with the belief, hey, it's okay to curse out my kids and get drunk in front of them and have them run to the liquor store to get me more beer. And another one may say, no, that's not right. That's not. And your differing faith, how you view God, your relationship with God, comes into the relationship. Now, here's the main reason why um, Paul says, and some of you guys are familiar with this verse in 2 Corinthians, he tells them, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, I want you to take note of all the other words he uses. He says, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And basically he's saying, hey, if you're supposed to be a marital unit working in cohesion, lockstep together to accomplish God's goal, you can't do that because you don't have things in common or fellowship or harmony with someone who doesn't acknowledge God. I can't say God is going to be the center of my relationship with someone who says, I don't believe God exists. Because what's going to end up happening when you have different morals and different beliefs that guide your morals is you're going to have one person who's going to be frustrated because I have to put aside my beliefs to accommodate yours or you have to put aside your beliefs to accommodate mine. And that puts tension and stress on the marital relationship. And again, I'm not saying that people uh, that don't believe in God shouldn't marry. Of course they could. Nowhere in the Bible does it say they shouldn't. But when you have differing moral beliefs, it puts tension and stress on the marital relationship. And if you are a Christ follower and you marry someone that is not a Christ follower, I'm not saying God can't use that and God can't change that, but here's what's happening. You're entering into a relationship where either you're going to sacrifice your relationship with God to accommodate their unbelief or they're going to be extremely frustrated by your belief and it's going to put tension on the relationship. Okay? All right, so here's the thing. We move to the last one, and that is forever, which is basically commitment. And this is, this is basically acknowledging that nothing on earth is going to separate this marital bond that God created. It's basically saying that nothing in existence is going to come between us. Even when we talk about money, even when we have the family structures, even if, you know, we're, we're struggling because even now today you have within denominations different understandings of who God is. 
some people that say, hey, we're Christians, but they don't believe Christ really raised from the dead. They believe it's an analogy. So you really have to pay attention. But even despite all that, the commitment is saying nothing. Nothing is going to separate us. Because marriage is supposed to be a shadow of the relationship that Christ has with us. And Paul tells us that, um, and some of you guys are familiar with this verse as well in Romans. He says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when we marry someone as Christ followers, we're saying that nothing, neither death nor life, angels nor demons, the present nor the future, nor any powers, height nor depth, anything in creation will be able to separate us because our relationship is founded on Jesus Christ, who is our Lord, if you're a Christ follower, okay? So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and uh, we're going to spend some time in worship, but before we do that, uh, to make this a little easier, I'm going to ask everyone to just stand for a minute. And here, I was just going to ask the married couples to stand, but that may be awkward for them. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do. If you are here with your spouse, if you would just grab their hand for a minute. And if you're not here with your spouse and your spouse is at home or whatever, uh, just take this in your head, okay? Uh, and I'm going to ask you to just bow your heads with me for a minute. Uh, and I am going to, for all intents and purposes, ask you guys to renew your marital vows here and now. And if you're opposed to that, I'm not going to ask you to speak it out loud, but definitely speak it so that your spouse can hear it. So I'm going to ask the husbands. Husbands, as you take your wife's hands, I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. Say, I take and say her name to continue as my wife. I acknowledge the bond God created when he united us together. I commit to love her with a never-ending love, never love in good times and bad, times or bad. whether we are rich or poor. Rich or poor. And I acknowledge, I acknowledge that with God at the center, God at the center nothing, in creation nothing in creation will ever stop me from loving her. Now, ladies, if you would repeat after me as you hold your husband's hand, say, I take and say his name. To continue as my husband, I acknowledge the bond God created when he united us together. I commit to love him with a never-ending love in good times and bad, whether we are rich or poor, and I acknowledge that with God at the center, Nothing in creation will ever stop me from loving him. Okay, you can raise your heads. Now, by the power vested in me, I repronounce you man and wife. Um, go ahead and kiss your bride. Kiss your bride. You should kiss your bride. There you go. Praise God. All right.